Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're, so like my days would be a couple eggs, uh, a couple chicken fingers, you know, a couple pieces of broccoli, and then getting like half off apps at Applebee's. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we are talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's guest is former big league utility man Ty Kelly, who made it to the bigs as a 13th round pick out of UC Davis. He walks us through his career and talks about the good decision to transfer after his freshman year at college his experience playing in the World Baseball Classic as a member of Team Israel, and the art of being a utility guy. Ty is also a leading member of the group Advocates for Minor Leaguers, whose goal is to improve working conditions for minor league ballplayers. Ty takes us through his personal experience with the difficult working conditions that he went through during his time as a minor leaguer, and why he's now doing what he can to make those conditions the thing of the past. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcast. I want to thank everyone who's checked out the show in 2020. This is the last episode of the year uh, and enjoyed these stories. And I'd also like to thank Baseball America and JJ Cooper, especially for making this show happen. We've got some really exciting episodes on tap for 2021. Uh, first up in two weeks is going to be Gift and Gopay, the first player from the continent of Africa to make it to the big leagues. Uh, more good stuff on tap, so make sure you're subscribed if, uh, if you've enjoyed these, these episodes so far in 2020. Also, make sure you're subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. It's top 10 prospect season, and the hot stove is heating up. Baseball America is the best place to get all the details on the prospect halls and those high-profile deals. Kyle Glazer has a write-up of the Blake Snell deal on the site right now. For future guest info of this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. But for now, let's talk to Ty Kelly. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was a 13th round pick in the 09 draft by the Orioles' former big league utility man, Ty Kelly. Ty, thanks so much for joining From Phenom to the Farm. Thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. I've been looking forward to this, and I, I want to get right into the, the important stuff. Are you really obsessed with sweet potatoes, or is it just a bit? No, I truly am obsessed. Uh, I make them so often uh, that I think the only word to describe it is obsession um they i don't know they're just like they're so versatile um and i guess you know like you said a uh, utility guy I, I love versatility you can't you can do a lot of things with a sweet potato i have i have something i have a question for you about that in our rapid fire at the end um and you are a a vegetarian correct a vegan actually yeah. vegan okay how long have you been a vegan for about three and a half years Okay, so you you didn't have to try to eat vegan lifestyle in the low minors. No, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate. I don't, I mean, that would just not have been possible. Um, there, a lot of times the spreads were like chicken fingers. Um, yeah, I, I, I will day. cross that potential uh, potential question off my list because yeah, when I when I saw that you were a vegan, 
uh, I was like, I don't know how vegan and, and low A would mix. Um, but let's, uh, let's roll it back to before you went to pro ball. Um, you grew up the son of a baseball coach. Did you know pretty early on that baseball was going to be your ticket to, to college athletics? No, I think that, uh, my parents did a really good job, uh, for, you know, really everyone they come across, but definitely for my sister and I, that we were going to be able to just, I don't know, do something they were so supportive of, uh, everything that we did. And they were always so positive about us being good at those things that I think that, uh, at least for myself, I always bought in that I was going to be able to do something successfully. And I really, I mean, I played every sport growing up and then into high school, I played, uh, basketball also. And, um, I mean, basketball in high school is way more fun than baseball, uh, just because of the like social aspect of it. So, uh, I really didn't know until, you know, I, I feel like I'm sort of a late bloomer in a lot of, uh, different aspects, but definitely like for baseball, I don't think I knew really until junior summer that I was going to be able to go like even division one. And then I just ended up having some good showcases and, uh, played well in some, some tournaments and things like that and, and ended up signing, uh, division one and, and kind of, you know, I didn't really know until it actually happened. Was basketball, college basketball on the radar at all? Or once you realized that your ceiling might've been a bit higher in baseball as far as school you could attend, is that what made the decision? I think it was probably, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I ever thought I was going to play college basketball while I was, uh, I don't know, like junior, senior year. I, I, I don't think I ever thought that I could, I mean, I may have been able to somewhere small, but, uh, yeah, the more baseball took over the, the more I realized that that was going to be the ticket, but it was that like that same time. I mean, I really didn't know until junior ish year in those sports because I was still, I was like, you know, in both baseball and basketball, I was fighting for starting spots, um, the one of the third basemen on um, my junior year on our team was one of the top like eight quarterbacks in the country. And he was like an unbelievable athlete. So I essentially had to, you know, outplay him to, to even start my, my junior year in baseball. So um, yeah, everything was kind of in that range. I, I feel like s- sort of started to define itself for me. And did you pick up switch hitting as a as an amateur or before college? Were you are were you always a switch hitter? Yeah, it was, my dad had me switch hitting my whole life. Um, I think he was he grew it's like up, every dad's dream. Definitely, yeah. I think he. I, I mean, I remember him being. Uh, he grew up in like the Mickey Mantle era, and uh, he always talked about like how Mike Schmidt had said that he wished he if he could change one thing he would have been a switch hitter and. Um, yeah, and he's a very, he's very sports minded and is going to put the time in, uh, with sports to a lot, you know, to basically treat me as two different hitters and, and throw BP for hours. And, um, and that's, you know, then he just had me doing it forever. Uh, ever since little league, I would just alternate at bats. Um, you know, and then when, when pitchers, we started to face actual pitching in, in, uh, in little league, I would still switch because no one could really throw off speed, so it didn't matter. And then, uh, yeah, and then from there, once people could start throwing sliders, I actually started going always lefty righty and righty lefty. 
Is there any sort of guide to switch hitting, like what you need to do, especially as you manage it in college and and pro ball, like a certain amount of you need to just straight up double your workload? Is it a feel thing? What's kind of the secret to to keeping that going? Because sometimes you hear of it and, and then some guys end up dropping aside. I, yeah, I always did. I always treated it, like I said, basically like two different hitters um, because that was what my dad told me to do. And it was kind of a thing where uh, I would go off to practice and, you know, be forced to ask the coaches for extra batting practice. And it, as someone who doesn't like to really like rock the boat in any way, it definitely wasn't always fun to have to ask for, for more than everyone else was getting. But like, I mean, I think a lot of the coaches understand how difficult it is and they will make concessions for that. But, uh, yeah, I always growing up was hitting, I mean, in high school when my dad was throwing batting practice and in, in little league, um, I was getting, you know, probably hundreds of more swings every day on, on both sides. So I was always fortunate to be able to treat it like that. And then once you get into pro ball and, and can spend more time in the cages on your own, um, then you can sort of figure out what you need from both sides. Well, it paid off. You you signed with Loyal Marymount, and then and then you make a change after your freshman year. What goes into the the decision to transfer as a freshman in college? Well, I think that I was a bit of a typical freshman at LMU, and um, I was very much just like figuring things out, and I had gotten injured, and. and um, and I think the coaches thought that I was, I don't know, like a typical freshman, like milking it or something like that. And uh, yeah, and they just really didn't like me that much uh, because of those kinds of things. I didn't have the college baseball like attitude at all as far as, um, I don't know, being very like energetic, I guess. Uh, so I really don't feel like I fit in um, in college baseball that well. So, um, and I totally understand, uh, why they would, you know, think all of those things. Um, so it just sort of worked out that, uh, I'd been recruited by UC Davis from in high school and, um, and we had played against, uh, Davis that year and, and, um, you know, it had kind of like rekindled the, that connection just from, you know, being around those coaches that had just got done recruiting me. Um, and, uh, basically at the end of the year, talked to some other guys, uh, at school who had stayed and had thought about transferring and they sort of said, like, you just need to make the best decision for yourself, um, and not feel like you've, you know, like, like this is your life. You need to not feel committed to this one decision. And, uh, fortunately I, you know, I pulled the trigger. You mentioned not having the, the quote unquote, the right college baseball attitude and you do need a certain I think at least, especially perceived, but even just getting through it, because college ball can feel like a like a job at times, not like pro ball, but it can feel like it, it's very much a, a grind. How does one find success, get appreciated by their coaches, without having quote unquote that the right attitude? How did because you eventually did find success at UC Davis? What kind of made the difference there between Loyola and Marymount? Well, I think I got lucky that um, our our head coach at, at Davis, Rex Peters, is a lot more of a laid back, like professional baseball um, attitude, and it really made all the difference. Like uh, just the, all like Davis in general was very much going from LMU, which was like a, a small private school, 
um, to just like a wide open 35,000 kids on campus. And then baseball wise, sort of a laid back coach um, who allowed, you know, kids to be human and to be, to like make mistakes and, and not, um, you know, and, and not have to like run the entire campus every time you don't get a bunt down or something like that. Um, so I think that like just having that sort of, just like a little bit of margin for error in being just human, like everyone's, you know, 18 to 22 years old or whatever, um, was really helpful for me who, you know, is sort of like perpetually trying to just figure things out. So you broke out in a big way your sophomore year at Davis. Was that all, do you think that was all attributed to just being able to relax a little bit more there? Or was there something, there was something you changed mechanically or is it just a physical maturity kind of thing? Yeah, I didn't change anything. I, I feel like when I was at LMU, I was a good player. Um, like I said, I had sort of gotten injured. I, I'd injured my back early on in the year um, and wasn't really getting to play but I had like the the one thing that I do remember from LMU is that there's a big monster in left field uh you know the wall is like 30 feet high or whatever um and I had gone I'd hit an opposite field home run over that uh in a fall ball game and that was like a huge deal to have done that basically because no lefties really ever did that um so I don't feel like I was far off from being a good player Um, because I was able to do things like that. But it was a matter of getting the chance to start and get consistent at bats. And then um, I think that I was very much just a, like, I was just a really good fastball hitter um, and was always looking to swing, which was something that changed throughout my professional career when I started essentially, like, not swinging ever (laughs) and just walking all the time. But I was just, I don't know, I just really worked out well for, um, to, to be able to just, get to go up there in the middle of a really good lineup um, my sophomore year and just go hit fastballs, basically. You win the Big West batting title. You head to the Cape. You're a Cape League all-star. When you head into your junior year, I've got to imagine the draft is on your mind after having a just a big statistical last 12 months. Definitely. Yeah, I was planning uh, like what kind of car I was going to get if I got drafted in like the fifth round and stuff like that. Uh, Had you received any indication from scouts that the fifth round was on the radar? Like, were uh, they in the Cape? Were they letting you know things? I, I, I mean, I forget exactly. I, I feel like uh, someone had said, like, you know, you could do this, and it it always happens to everybody. It's like they expect to go in a certain round, and then it's ten rounds after that. Um, it just sort of always happens, I think. And I definitely was planning big things for myself because it had been so easy as a sophomore. Um, Like I said, I was hitting second in a lineup that hit, I want to say we hit like 315 or something like that as a team. Um, And like we were just really, really good with 50-year seniors and and good transfers, myself included, uh, and like getting to hit second, you know, between a a really good leadoff hitter and a a three-hitter that uh, went in the third round. Like... Um, it was, you know, it was kind of a dream come true to be in that spot. So I definitely had, um, you know, dreams of, of grandeur. Um, and it's, it, it is a lot more difficult to, uh, (laughs) to perform when basically all of those guys that I just mentioned, uh, got drafted that year. So we're pretty much starting fresh 
and I'm one of the only, you know, like guys from the year before coming back and it just makes it a lot more difficult to succeed. Was draft-itis a thing as well? I, th- I mean, I think to a certain extent, I think that I, I, I certainly didn't um, like stop trying or stop uh, working hard or anything like that. Um, because it was always sort of, you know, it was always sort of natural, I guess, to, to just go like wake up and hit fastballs, which is, you know, mostly what college baseball at least was. I, I'm sure it's a lot different now, um, with how much off speed everyone throws. But, um, yeah, I think that I probably took it for granted that I was just going to go hit 400, um, and do basically the same stuff that I did the year before. And then, get drafted and, you know, in the top five or 10 rounds and everything would be, uh, really easy. And then it definitely was not. So walk me through the, the draft day experience then. And, and why, why was signing still the right move? Well, so draft day, um, I was, Davis is on the, uh, quarter system. So it goes late. It starts late and goes until June. Um, so, I was taking a final when I got drafted and I, I knew that I would uh, be in a final when the draft was going on. So I had talked to the professor beforehand and um, got to take it in like a teacher's lounge, basically. Um, and it was my African-Americans in television class. Uh, and I was taking time uh, fielding calls from scouts while uh, writing about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And um, that was basically my experience. I I got drafted, um, got the call from the Orioles, and uh, was told that I had been drafted. I didn't know, like, what round or anything. I was just kind of like, oh, okay, like, that's cool. I, I need to just, like, finish my test. And uh, I got some text messages. One of my uh, teammates at the time uh, sent me a text message and I had to ask him, like, where I got drafted. And he, he told me what round and everything. Um, and then I finished the test and signed the next day. Um, it didn't really seem... I mean, I never considered not signing. I pretty much just said, whatever you guys offer is what I'm going to take. I didn't have an agent or anything. Um, I was just at lunch with the scout and my dad. And uh, they offered um, money. And I said, let's do it. And was gone in like a week uh, playing pro ball. There have been 20 episodes of this show, I think 20, and two of them are big leaguers who signed in the 13th round of the 09 draft. Really? Uh, which, yeah, the other was uh, Lane Adams, who was a high school okay. guy that year. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, which is just very random. But um, So you sign, what did you think big league Ty Kelly looked like? Did you have any idea of what your path to the big leagues looks like and what kind of guy you could be in the show. Yeah. I think I was pretty sure at the time that I was going to be the next Brian Roberts. Um, of course. Going, going to the Orioles. Like I, I honestly knew very little about, uh, the Orioles at all about Maryland in general. Um, and then, you know, I think your first instinct is to just look at like, just go straight to the big league roster and say, who are the people in the positions that I might play? And it's like, okay, well, I'll probably be a second baseman um, at some point, even though I had played mostly third in college and everything. Um, and so I was like, yeah, Brian Roberts is a switch hitter. hits a lot of doubles. 
Um, I basically just felt like I needed to get better hitting right-handed and I was going to be good to go. Um, and obviously it takes a lot more than that. And (laughs) there's so much more to, you know, everything in baseball, but that was pretty much what I thought, uh, when I got drafted. Did you get sent out as a second baseman in short season in those first two years in low A, or did you, did you have to morph into a utility guy pretty quickly? I would say most seasons in my career, I would start out as the second baseman on the team, and then something would happen to the third baseman, and I would end up playing third for like the entire rest of the year. Um, it ha- for some reason, it just happened like that every year. Um, I think that like in spring training, the Orioles were like, you're a second baseman, and then, you know, what if someone gets hurt or someone gets called up? And and then I would just go to third base because I always had a, a good arm. And honestly, I really enjoyed playing third. Um, just the, you know, getting all of the, like, reactionary plays. I thought it was, was sort of my, the thing that I was uh, best at or definitely got best at. Um, so it just kind of worked out like that. And I think that that was definitely helpful. I didn't really start playing outfield until uh, probably until not, I guess I didn't start playing consistent outfield until I was with the Cardinals. So it, like my fifth year in was uh, when I started really, or maybe I guess that's like my sixth year in um, was when I really started moving around in the outfield and not just playing left field like four times a year. When you become a guy who is, there's a realistic chance that you might be out and left one day. You might play some center. You might play the infield spots. How much extra work goes into that? What is the what is the day to day? You know, when you show up to the stadium for for BP or ground balls, what are you doing? Um, it's a lot for sure. I mean, you've got three groups in batting practice to do stuff. So you've got your um, the group you're hitting in, and then a couple other groups to work on all of the positions basically and really there's nothing like game experience like you can go shag as many fly balls in left field um during batting practice as you want but there's nothing that's going to exactly simulate games like actual uh game experience out there so i think that i got i was fortunate that i was kind of squeezed out of the infield enough at certain times in my career that I had to figure it out on the fly. Um, because it's definitely not easy at all to get, you know, to just go out there, like sure infielders can do it and they're going to make a lot of the plays, but they're also going to screw up a lot of angles just because they're, you know, either going too steep or, or being too conservative. Um, so like, I, I think it's just a lot of, you know, balls off the bat. Coaches will go out there and hit fungos from like 80 feet away from the outfield, which I mean, in my opinion, really does nothing. But like just getting game experience and and having to make those quick decisions is is what was really helpful for me. Did you reach a full level of comfort by the by the end of your career? By the time you're tired, did you reach a full level of comfort at every spot that you were put in? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that I was probably always most nervous in the outfield because especially in the big leagues, like when you go from, uh, from AAA to the majors and you're using for basically all of my time in AAA, except for my last year in 2019, 
Um, it was minor league balls and big league balls, and they were, you know, just completely different things. So you go play outfield in the minors, and someone crushes a ball, and you can afford to take a step in and then still get back. But in the big leagues, the balls are going to go an extra 30 feet or whatever, like how, however much further they're going. Um, and big league hitters and big league stadiums where the wind's not affecting as much. And it's just like you, you can get beat really easily. So you end up pl- definitely playing more conservative and, you know, pretty much playing on the warning track. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to really get comfortable, uh, comfortable everywhere if you're not playing it all the time. But I, you know, the more you do it, the, I think the easier it gets and, and the more you're ready to, you know, take that first step back um, when you when you get called up. So something else you had to adjust to when you got into pro ball besides playing multiple spots is the the living situation of pro ball and the lifestyle of pro ball. And that is something that um, that is, is relevant to what you're doing now with uh, MILB advocates, but your time in short season and then in low a Del Marva, what is the, what's the living situation like during those years? Well, in short season, I was, um, I was able to live with a host family, which was awesome. Um, they were amazing and they hosted players every year and they would let us use their car um, to get to and from the field, and uh, that was great. And then the the next year, my first year in um, in full season in Loe Delmarva, uh, my first of two full seasons there, I lived on an air mattress in the middle of a living room with no furniture, no TV, no internet, no blinds on the windows, no nothing in there. It was just pure myself on an air mattress with like my suitcase of clothes on the floor. Um, and you know, and then people in that had their own rooms, but I was just sort of out there alone, uh, trying to spend like, you know, $200 a month or whatever, just trying not to spend anything on, on living so that I could eat and, um, you know, make some money during the season. So it was, definitely difficult um like you end up trying to not spend money on food either before you go to the stadium and then you get to the field and it's like there's you know there's very little to go around um and it can be really tough and certainly not healthy now what did you have to subsist on because you're you're a professional athlete you're playing 130 games um, in a very short amount of time yeah, I mean, so in Delmarva, our spread when we got to the field was after batting practice. Um, so, like, you have to eat something at home, first of all. So, it would be maybe, like, two eggs at home, um, which clearly is, like, almost nothing. Um, just to try and, like, make a, a dozen eggs last as long as possible. Um, and then get to the field and do a bunch of stuff in 100-degree heat and then... Um, have like some carrots and broccoli and that we would have chicken fingers from um, the concession stand basically was our pregame meal every day. Um, Sometimes there were other things, but it was for the most part, it was chicken fingers and it was kind of like you could get one or two of them. If you ever went over two, like you were going to get yelled at by someone 
um, which is, you know, which is pretty tough uh, for a lot of guys who are very different in size and um, in the things that they're doing every day to have to try and, you know, live on two chicken fingers and maybe a, like post game, we would go to Applebee's all the time um, because there's just like nothing open late night. So you're, so like my days would be a couple eggs, uh, a couple chicken fingers, you know, a couple pieces of broccoli and then getting like half off apps at Applebee's. Um, so maybe like a chicken quesadilla and uh, I forget what else, maybe like chicken wings. I don't know. Um, and trying to spend like $10 on uh, dinner. So that was basically a lot of days like that. Kind of goes without saying, I think, but how much does that take away from your ability to just effectively do your job? Yeah, I mean, just to like stay awake during the game. I, I can't imagine trying to do that now. Like I, the way that I eat now, like in still training, but like the way that I'm able to eat, I'm eating probably like three times the amount of protein as, as I was getting every day while I was at the field for 10 hours. And like as someone who at the lower levels, you're doing tons of early work too. So as someone who plays multiple positions, I was doing the early work for third baseman and then the early work for uh, up the middle guys and then batting practice and then, uh, and then a full game. And and like at that time too, I was playing basically every single day. So you know, you might play like 135 game uh, games in a season, and it's like it's just crazy to think that I was doing that, also sleeping on an air mattress and probably getting awful sleep, um, like you know, waking up every single morning to blinding sunlight, um, and yeah, just uh, it's hard to imagine how I survived it all. And I assume you had to work in the off season. I gave lessons in the off season, but I was very fortunate that my my parents, like since I was going back to school to finish uh, my degree, they they would help me out in the off season. So I would pay for everything during the season, um, and then they would help me out with like rent uh, and groceries and stuff like that in the off season, um, which I was uh, super lucky to to have that because I wouldn't have been able to do like to be working a job and be going to school and trying to train and everything, um, which tons of guys have to do just to survive, which, uh, again, just seems impossible. Does it create any, any morale problems in the clubhouse? Or is there any sort of friction where guys are, certain guys are living kind of close to the poverty line? And there are other guys who who get big bonuses. And obviously, it's not their fault. Like in 2011, you know, you had Manny Machado on your team, mm-hmm. a guy who is who is comfortable. And in, in the big leagues, there is a, a certainly a great pair to pay disparity. There are guys making thirty million dollars a year, and there are guys making five hundred thousand or less a year. But in the minors, that is a um, it's a difference between a top tax bracket and borderline poverty does that create a hostile work environment in any sense i don't think so i don't think i mean people are definitely jealous but i don't think that anyone is blaming the you know the the bonus babies for making money i don't think anyone was like upset at manny or or uh or was hostile to him because of that i think that everyone sort of puts it squarely on uh, 
definitely more when I was playing, like it was, there was so much less of a, uh, this is wrong. Like we should do something about it. It was just like, this is the way it is. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it, which of course is the thing that we're, you know, we're trying to change. And I think that, uh, with social media and things like that, uh, guys are understanding that the way they're being treated is, um, you know, shameful. And so it's not such a big deal to, to complain and, and say like the, you know, there, there actually is someone to blame for this. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I remember that Manny, uh, that year bought me a, like a couple bags of chips one time. And I thought that that was like really cool. Um, obviously like he, you know, he made millions of dollars or however much he signed for. And it was probably not a huge deal to him, but I, that was sort of my experience with, uh, you know, like with being around a first rounder that he could just buy probably like $3 worth of chips for me when I clearly didn't, you know, want to spend any money. It perks. Yeah. And I mean, not to, not to derail the podcast, you know, soapbox or anything, but it's like the greatest the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing employees to get mad at each other over, over not making as much money. So it's, it's good that that doesn't, doesn't come through in a clubhouse even then. And especially now with the, um, I, I would guess the, the movement I would call it, but, um, you know, you, you do two years in Delmarva, uh, you, you know, you play over, you know, play nearly 250 games in low a, you're 23 years old or heading into your 23 year old season. At that point, after after you know learning the ropes of pro ball and seeing how you stack up, do you still think there's a path to the big leagues? And at that point, does it feel still worth it to keep going out when you're living in an air mattress, trying not to spend money? Not really. I mean, I thought that after my first full season, and then I went to the next uh, spring training in 2011. I was told that I was on the border of either going back to Delmarva or going to extended. So at that point, I was pretty much like, well, this is, you know, I'm maybe this is not going to work out. And maybe like my my college girlfriend uh, is worth like, you know, not going to back to high A to waste my I mean, to low A to to like waste my time and not even play. Um, And like I talked to my dad about it and he pretty much convinced me, like, just go play and see what happens. Like if you still want to quit, like you can do it anytime. Um, so luckily, uh, the manager who was there, Ryan Miner, um, from the year before was going back to Delmarva. I had played, I had definitely played well the year before. Um, and I was one of the better players and more consistent players on the team. Um, and he, he talked to the organization and made sure that I was on the team. Um, even though I was in a bench role going back into the next year, because our infield was, Jonathan Scope at third, Manny at short, and then Michael Givens when he was still uh, an infielder was playing second. So I was basically the odd man out there um, and had to work my way into the lineup when guys got hurt. Inevitably, Manny hurt his knee at some point early on, and I ended up uh, getting in the lineup. I started to play a little bit of left field um, at that point too. And then, you know, at some point, Scope got called up. Uh, Manny got called up. I think Givens was sent to become a pitcher. And so I, you know, I was back in as like one of the mainstays in the infield and uh, just like really worked out that I, you know, it it happens every year at every level. Guys are going to get injured and uh, guys are going to get called up and things like that. So I was fortunate to have stuck around. 
so that year, that second year in low A, you can kind of see it. You your batting average is a little bit better, more walks, at least like a better walk rate, fewer strikeouts. And then in in 2012, you eat your Wheaties. You had 346 at High A Frederick in a league that Carolina League is not a hitter's league. Uh, 308 and 46 games at Bowie. And then you make it all the way to AAA Norfolk to end the year. You're both, you're hitting better. You're taking more walks. Was that off-season work that paid off? Was it just maturity? What goes into a rapid rise like that? So it was, I actually credit it to, well, one thing is Frederick was a good place to hit um, of all the places. It was a little more, I think a little higher elevation in like, I don't know if it's like the mountains of Maryland or hills or whatever. I interned for Salem, which is not a good place to hit. Oh, so. yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a lot of places uh, that were definitely not good places to hit at. But Frederick was um, was pretty good. Uh, all things considered. And so I'd actually, I started in high A and then mid-May or maybe early May even, I actually got called up to triple A and it was kind of an accidental call up. The, a, a bunch, like three infielders got hurt back-to-back days in triple A Norfolk. And so they had called up uh, one of my teammates, Bobby Stevens, who was an older uh, A-ball player who um, just kind of been around a while. So they trusted him to go fill in in AAA. And it ended up, you know, like someone got DFA'd. Another guy, Ryan Adams, uh, broke his thumb, I'm pretty sure, uh, like uh, punching his helmet into the uh, helmet cubby or whatever it's called. That classic injury gets one person a year. Yeah, yeah. And like, and very, and like really unfortunate because he was such a good hitter too. Um, and, but like it just, all of these things happened and then they ended up, uh, having to call myself up also. Um, so me and Bobby Stevens are both starting, uh, in triple a because the guys in double a couldn't get a flight out of wherever they were because they had to fly. We had to fly to Indianapolis to fill in. And so I flew to Indianapolis for, you know, going from high A to triple a, and it was like it was basically like going to play in the big leagues. And again, like I was fortunate to have another really relaxed manager there, um, having um, Ron Johnson there, and just like someone that was very inviting and just like, hey, just have fun, and you're here filling in. It's not a big deal. And then I ended up getting a hit the first game, and then the next game. Uh, Got, I hit like a double off the left field wall um, and like was doing well. And then they told me that I was going to go back with the team to Norfolk. I was going to travel back and Bobby was going to go back to high A, but they were going to keep me for a little while because they were still short on infielders. And then after a couple more games, I was still hitting well. Um, and I ended up hitting in the two hole in the triple A lineup for the next like two weeks while I was there. And facing good pitching, like facing, I uh, faced Chris Archer at the time. I think I walked like twice off him. Like I was doing, I was doing really well against good pitching and sort of proving to the organization and to myself that I really was a good hitter. And like you said, like I was drawing more walks and things like that. And going from high A umpiring to triple A umpiring also was a huge deal because I didn't feel like I had to swing at pitches that were six, seven inches off the plate anymore. Um, and I was able to just sort of like 
you know, just be confident in knowing the strike zone, which I, I was, uh, so it, it like all of those things came together so that when I did end up going back to high A, when they got the double A players to come fill in, um, I went back with like, I, with the idea that I was better than high A, that I could play in triple A and that like that feeling of being one step away from the majors, um, was like something that I could hold on to. Um, and just kind of like going into every game being like, there's no way that these pitchers can get me out. And like, I really believed that and it made a huge difference. Did that bring back the idea of being a big leaguer to you? Yeah, it definitely did. Uh, because I remember being in Norfolk, like Norfolk, speaking of bad places to hit, Norfolk is just like the absolute worst place to hit because it's right on the water. Um, the air is so thick. The fences, I'm pretty sure, have been moved in since then. Um, but like I hit a home run in Norfolk um, and like I was like, oh, I hit a, a triple-A homer, um, which was a huge deal for someone who had spent two years in low A and then was just getting to high A, you know, I was just a month in high A so far. So it was, it was like so big for me to have that. And then to go back and immediately just take the things that I had learned and then face high A pitching, uh, with like, you know, with just being like within myself and within my strike zone that I knew, uh, was the actual strike zone. And just immediately, I just started going off. Like for the next, I don't know, month and a half or two months, like I was unstoppable. And it was just a, like, it was just like that feeling where, like I said, like no, none of these guys can get me out. And I could pretty much go up and just depending on like what day it was, what stadium and stuff, I could be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go hit a double today. or I'm going to go walk three times. Um, and I, it was just like, uh, you're just like, so in the zone. And it was like that for like two months. You, you carried that into Bowie and then you're, you're back there in 2013. And then what is the process of finding out you've been traded and it, is being traded an encouraging thing? Is it, is, does it feel good to know that you were good enough to use as collateral for a big leaguer? I've always viewed uh, being traded or being picked up by another team is something really positive because when you go to a new team, they see all of the positive things. Um, the team, like wherever you are, they see a reason to keep you where you're at. Um, so, you know, they'll see like, okay, he does these things well, but it also like, he doesn't do this well. So like, let's keep him in this level until whatever. And then like you go to a new place and there's like, okay, these are all of the things you do well. Like, let's see you do those things. And, um, I, it just feels like a very positive, um, thing to happen, like, and to, to be able to, you have to, like, you can prove that you, are are not good you know what i mean where you're you're constantly trying to prove that you are good on whatever team you're you're currently on you know what i mean so um yeah i i always enjoyed like getting traded and going to new teams and it it was something that ended up happening quite a bit so i I guess it was good that i enjoyed it when you get dealt to the mariners they also jump you to triple a but triple a is in tacoma which could not have been farther from where you're at what is the process of being a minor because when big league guys get traded they have you know the the traveling secretaries and they also have just means in general to to make to move stuff around what's the process for you how are we getting the air mattress to tacoma 
So it was actually really an, a very interesting couple of years with uh, my dad. So in 2012, the that move that I was talking about from high A to Indianapolis, uh, you know, to fly to Indianapolis, my dad was there for that. So I, so he's out in Frederick and then we're at like, I don't know, Applebee's or something like that. And I get the call from the manager that I'm going to Indianapolis the next day. So I go for the two games in Indianapolis and then fly back to Norfolk. And so my dad had just driven my car out all the way from California to Maryland. So he was bringing me my car, um, you know, like a month into the season so that I could uh, get to and from the field, you know, whenever I wanted and be able to go lift and stuff like that. Um, So he drove my car from Frederick to Norfolk when we got back. And then, um, and then I ended up getting sent back to Frederick and he flew home after that, but he stayed for the whole, like two weeks that I was in, uh, Norfolk and went to all the games and stuff like that. So it was like one of those like weird coincidences that just like really worked out. So then 2013, when I got traded, I had shipped my car out, but my dad was out there again, watching the games. And I, right before a doubleheader, um, in the morning, I got to the field. Uh, Gary Kendall, our manager, called me in. I was just like, hey, you've been traded. And it was very strange because it's really not something that's on your radar. Um, as like this was my, you know, I had been in the organization for four and a half years. And it was all I knew was Orioles. And all of those guys were the only people that I knew. Um, and so it was very weird. But then, so like he's out there again and I, your dad is like the angel of roster moves. Definitely. It was, it was so weird. So he I, like, you know, bless his soul. He, he drove my car from Maryland all the way across the country. Uh, he stopped at like his brother's house in Colorado and then drove to Salt Lake city where I, I flew to Tacoma for our first series. And then uh, after a couple games, we went to Salt Lake city. So he drove, all the way to Salt Lake City, uh, all the way across the country, and met us there for our series. And then I think we went to Tucson right after that, if I'm not mistaken. And so th- during that time, he drove my car up to Tacoma so that after the three games, in, or three or four games in Tucson, he would be there in Tacoma with my car. Um, so <laughs> I got super lucky again. Um, essentially, he was my my you know traveling secretary uh, slash driver um and he so i had my car up in tacoma and then for like i I forget how long he stayed out there but uh it was like for the all-star break i'm pretty sure and um until i got settled into uh the place where i was going to stay in tacoma he was out there for that and then he finally flew back home so Tacoma seems to agree with you. You finish the year, you hit 320, and then the next season you pop 15 dingers, you get on base at a high clip. By then you've gotten over 200 games in AAA. Do you feel on the brink of the bigs as like being at that level for a while would suggest? Do you feel discouraged or stuck? What's, what's, the, what's the mentality knowing that you've, you've reached AAA and you are at the very least a good, solid AAA player? Yeah, I think that after both 2013 and 2014, I felt like I could have been at least a September call-up. There were there were times in, there was at least one specific time in 2014 uh, when I was just raking. Like, I was just, like, doing everything. Um, I was, like, obviously hitting a bunch of home runs. I was, like, the whole offense for, for, like, a week in a row. 
and it was just like everything was was really clicking and uh, I got taken out of a game in like the eighth inning or something like that and like Michael Saunders was there rehabbing and I think Justin Smoke was there either rehabbing or, or on our team and they were both kind of like like you're you're getting called up um, and I definitely thought it was happening I didn't end up being the case um, I was just getting you know I don't know an inning of rest or something for whatever reason and uh, yeah and then it like September call-ups came around and um, still didn't get called up, but I definitely thought it was at least possible um, because I had, you know, I had done well. I mean, 15 home runs, I think, meant more at that point than it does now, um, especially with big league balls and stuff in AAA. But, you know, 15 homers then probably felt like low 20s um, in today's game. So I, I felt like I, I'd had a good year, Um and I was playing some positions. I still really wasn't great at fielding um, by any means anywhere, really. But, uh, yeah, it just didn't end up happening at that point. How much more preferable, though, is life in AAA than it is in low A or high A? I mean, it was amazing. And, and Tacoma, like, is Tacoma is so beautiful. Um, and also being from California, like, I was back on the West Coast uh, for the first time in, in my career. I was playing in places like Sacramento and Fresno which are uh, both like an hour or two hours from where I grew up. So I was seeing friends for the first time. uh, They were getting to come watch me play, family getting to come watch me play. Um, And like the weather in Tacoma is during the summer is just unbelievable. Um, It's, you know, it's like 70 degrees every single night. And uh, it's just like perfect baseball weather, like just chilly enough to, to wear... Like you can wear long sleeves or, or short sleeves, like whatever you want to do. And it's just so mild and I don't know, I think is really conducive um, to just kind of being relaxed and being able to just go play and not worry about um, your batting gloves being soaked in sweat from, you know, from being in 80% humidity in like the, in the South or whatever um, in midsummer. So I, yeah, I really really enjoyed being in Tacoma just as the city um, is concerned. And then also, you know, baseball wise, you get dealt again in the 2014 off season, the Cardinals, then you're claimed on waivers after kind of a tough early 2015 pick up a little bit when you're, you get claimed by the blue Jays, you know, you pick up the end of the seasons a little better and then you hit free agency for the first time. You get to control your own destiny for the first time in your career. Why the Mets? Well, I think it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, Terry Collins called me like the, I don't know, the first or second day of the uh, free agent signing period. Um, And it was just kind of like, oh, the big league manager is going to call me. Um, Like, they obviously really want me and my agent. I mean, I had had, I had a few teams reach out really early, like the first day. Uh, I think it was like the Yankees, Mets, and Dodgers. Um... And, but the other ones were not like as serious, I guess, uh, as the Mets were. I mean, they had the big league manager called me, which is a huge deal at that point. And I think also it's kind of like a lot of the guys on the team are aging or have been injured. And that's something that matters to someone that's trying to just fight to get called up for the first time. Um, if you've got a bunch of young guys that, uh, are all, you know, that don't get hurt. It's going to be hard to, uh, it's going to be hard to get called up at some point. So, um, not that you're like hoping for injuries, but 
that like if they're going to happen, then, you know, you want to be there. So I think that those things together um, made it pretty easy to decide to go with them. The combination of Terry Collins calling, you sign with the Mets, you go to AAA Las Vegas, you're hitting, you're putting up the best numbers of your career, at least average and OBP wise, you're getting on base. Um, the homers aren't really there, but everything else is is there. When do you start showing up to the ballpark thinking like with the today's the day thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it like at that point, it's hard to really be like, oh, this is for sure going to happen um, because it's kind of like I was hitting like 400 and it's like if it doesn't happen now, like there's just no way that I'm going to keep hitting 400 for the entire year. So like if this doesn't do it, I there I just like don't know what is going to get it done, you know. Um, and we certain there were certainly other guys on the team that were uh, that could have been called up. Like TJ Rivera was on our team doing just as well. Uh, that could easily have gotten his first call up uh, before I did. And I think that for both of us, like we were. We were really good friends. Um, he was probably like my best friend uh, on Vegas. And then when we both got called up and I'm still good friends with TJ and their family. Um, and, but I think we both like knew that we're pretty much in the same situation as guys that are, you know, somewhat like minor league veterans to a certain point and uh, not super highly valued as prospects. So it's like, we're both sort of fighting to get to just like be there first, you know, to establish ourselves as to get, just get on the 40 man for the first time. Um, and like, luckily we were, I think we were able to just be ourselves and not like compete, uh, as like, I, I hope that the other person doesn't do well because we were such good friends, but, um, and like we both got called up that year. So I think that, it was interesting to sort of like battle all of those things and not really know, like, is it going to be TJ? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be neither of us? Like, I don't think that either of us were certain that we were going to get called up. So it was, uh, it was, and it was great that we, we both were able to do it. Well, after 855 minor league games, 3,063 minor league at bats, you get the call, walk me through it. Yeah. So it was in Colorado Springs. And again, like, this was uh, this was a night after TJ had gotten called into the office in Colorado Springs, and uh, our manager was Wally Backman, who's definitely a very like dramatic guy. Um, and he had called TJ in. Everyone was like, "Oh, TJ's getting called up." It was a big deal. And then uh, it just turned out that Wally was just asking him if he wanted to play in the day game the next day, which was uh, <laughs> a little bit of a that's a tease. It was definitely a tease. I think uh, Wally had to know what he was doing, but I think he was also pretty confident that TJ was going to play well enough to get called up at some point. Uh, but it's still like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those questionable things for guys that haven't gotten called up for the first time. Um, you know, getting that like throw off can be tough, but that, like that happened the night before. So and I had gone over four that night too. So I was like, oh man, like I might've just like missed my shot. And so the next day I'm not in the lineup um, in a day game and like 10, 15 minutes before the game, I, I walked down the, the steps in Colorado Springs because the clubhouses are uh, up on the concourse. So you've got to walk through the fans and stuff. 
Um, so I walked down like with a, with my coffee for a day game and, um, and then like as the pitcher and catcher are coming in, um, before the game, uh, Wally pulls me, like he comes up to me on, on the railing and, um, does like his whole thing of, uh, like when guys are getting called up, like, you know, like you owe me something whatever. And it's like, wait, what, like what's going on? And then he like very dramatically is like, Hey, congratulations. You're, you're going up to meet the team in Washington tomorrow. And then everyone came over to me and, and I was very excited. And, um, yeah, it's just like a whole experience trying to process it all. And, uh, and then everyone being excited for you because, you know, it had been, uh, 855 games and, uh, a long time of not knowing if it would ever happen or not. Do you remember your first league at bat at first big league at bat in detail or was it a blur? I remember, uh, I actually, I really only remember the pitch I struck out on. It was like six inches inside. Um, and I got rung up, uh, and it was kind of like, if I, if I was in AAA and had gotten rung up on that pitch, I might've gotten thrown out. I certainly would have complained quite a bit. Um, but like in the big leagues, it's kind of like, oh, I guess this is just me being in my first game and facing Steven Strasburg. And like, he's going to get the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, when really there should be no doubt. But um, yeah, I, I really only remember like that pitch from my first at bat. How many ABs do you have to have in the big leagues to get comfortable like snipping at an umpire after a bad call? Or did you never, did you even get there? I almost never did that. Uh, I don't think I ever really complained or I, I remember in my second year in 2017, uh, I like semi complained in Washington again uh, at the beginning of the year. I think there's something with like being in, several major league spring trainings in a row and then finally being like semi in the league uh the year before uh where i'm still definitely not complaining because like it's what's just not going to help at all with veteran umpires um but i remember like looking back and sort of shaking my head uh at one call um but like besides that i did very little complaining in the big leagues well, you get 39 games in in your uh, your debut season in 2016, and then uh, spring of 2017. Where does where does that rank in your career accomplishments and experiences? Well, yes, spring 2017 uh, was a, a whirlwind, basically, of being in the World Baseball Classic and um, you know doing that for a couple weeks. Uh, just the whole experience, like it was my first time with all the guys for, um, team Israel and, and just like being a part of that was crazy and was something that, um, you know, I never would have imagined that I could have been a part of like playing in that tournament always seemed so cool, but very much reserved for, you know, the absolute best players on the planet. So, um, it was just amazing that we were able to go to Korea and Japan and, and have some success and, uh, you know, and kind of like build on that coming back into spring training with that experience of like getting in really, you know, really tough games and where everyone else is kind of going through playing five innings or whatever, like spring training games, like we were getting some serious competition in, 
Um, and so, and then like, that's just the beginning of the first couple of weeks of the season, basically, uh, before like making the major league roster for the Mets, um, being there for like four days for all of the opening day ceremonies for, um, all of the beginning of the season stuff in New York, just like being a part of that felt very, uh, just like, a, I don't know, just like being in the majors, um, as opposed to like just being an up and down guy. Um, and then getting uh, put on waivers claimed by the Blue Jays. And I was there for, like, I was in the Toronto hotel more than I was in, uh, you know, on a field at any point, basically. I played, like, two games in Buffalo and then uh, sat on the bench in Toronto for three games. And then again, uh, DFA'd and claimed, and then I went to Philly. So basically, like, my first two to three weeks of the season, I was almost not at a field at all. Um, you know, I was taking BP like very sporadically cause I was just on waivers for like the whole time with your stint with Philly, Philly keeps you, you're up for 69 games in the season and you're, you're a part-time guy. Do you feel, do you feel like you're a part of their plans or just there? Uh, I felt like I was pretty much just there, but I definitely felt like the coaches liked me. I like I, which I, I mean, which is important as long as the coaches are there. Like I, we, we had Pete McCannon um, and Larry Boa, two definitely like old school guys who appreciated that I would just show up, play wherever. Um, I, I did, I mean, I did so little that year because they were, everyone was essentially trying out to stay on the team. Like uh, Michael Franco was essentially trying out to see if they were going to keep him or not. Tommy Joseph, the same thing. Um, and then Reese Hoskins got called up that year, Nick Williams, uh, all like the whole pitching staff, um, all of these guys were essentially trying out and there was like, they were never going to take Freddie Gallus out of the game. They weren't going to take Cesar Hernandez out of games. Um, so there was not that much to do as a utility guy when everyone is, uh, out there, like we weren't going to the playoffs. So everyone was just there to make a case for themselves um, basically to like figure out who they we're going to keep for the next year. Uh, so yeah, is there an the, anxiety to that or was it, were you able to, to develop any sort of comfort in at least knowing that you're the, you're the utility guy? Uh, I mean, I, like I enjoyed it because I was just there and there was really no reason to send me down because I was doing almost nothing. Um, and I was someone that like if I had to go in and pinch it, I'm a switch hitter. If I had to go in and play a position, I could go play wherever. Um, and I was actually doing well. Like even though I didn't end up hitting for a good batting average or or whatever, like I I had really big moments there. And I I came in and did good things. And even if I like came in and moved someone over and it's an 0 for 1, like it's appreciated, like I said, by the coaching staff. Like they definitely liked me. Um I talked to Pete McCannon, uh, when he was, uh, scouting a couple years ago when I was in Salt Lake and he talked to me about like wishing that they could have kept me, but he didn't end up staying as the manager. Um, so it was like, I definitely, I know that I was appreciated by the, you know, by the old school guys or whatever, uh, which are, I'm sure mostly phased out of baseball at this point. Um, but I had a really good time just getting some random starts that year, like getting to start back in New York 
and facing DeGrom and, and guys that I had played with uh, the years before and getting to play against TJ when he was starting there, when he was healthy. Um, and and then getting some big pinch hit opportunities. I had some, uh, I had a walk-off hit and uh, game-winning hits and like I had really big moments and I felt very much like I was doing a good job at being a utility guy that might play two times a week. You do another stint in New York the year after with the Mets and, and most of that in Las Vegas, and then the Angels, uh, well, Salt Lake. When did when does retirement start to creep into your head? Uh, I think that before the 2019 season, in the offseason, like, this is sort of, we're getting towards the height of uh, guys, like, the the guys had to do their own spring training, I think, before the 2018 season. Um, and it's just like, if this is the way baseball is going to go, where owners don't want to pay players at all, like they just want to, uh, mix and match, you know, utility guys, uh, as much as possible. Uh, like they there's not that much use for a sort of veteran minor league infielder. Like they would rather give the, the minor league spots to young guys who have high potential, um, it, rather than someone who, you know, they don't see a future with that's just sort of there um, to fill a spot. Like they would rather fill a spot with someone who, who has a high ceiling, but, you know, might not be uh, super consistent. Um, so I like the, I think the writing was definitely on the wall there. I didn't know if I was going to sign or not um, because there were, there were still like a hundred MLB free agents that hadn't signed into like February or whatever. So it was, I was unsure and I was kind of coming to terms with like, you know, if I don't get an offer, uh, it's fine. I, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I got, uh, you know, the angels offered and, uh, I figured might as well just do it since I had a spot and I was training and I was ready to go and everything. Uh, and I think it ended up being a really good situation. I mean, there was never really a chance of me getting called up at any point in the season, but I was able to be in an organization that's like a hundred percent new wave everything. And I got to learn all of the like new hitting techniques and stuff, or, or at least the new ways to teach hitting um, and the new like theories on everything and stuff that I, in other organizations had just never uh, heard before because it hadn't made it, I guess uh, all of the analytics stuff. And then I got to play with some, like a bunch of really good young players uh, who, guys that had a lot of success uh, this year with the Angels. Um, and it's it was cool to, to see like really good prospects and be the like veteran guy on the team that, uh, that got respect from just being like a, around a long time um, in the minors and then having played uh, with the Mets was like a big deal and... Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that situation. Was there any nervousness of like, uh, what do I do now when I'm not a baseball player? Well, I think I've been like, I've been fortunate uh, that over the off seasons, I've definitely gained, I've definitely picked up some hobbies that I've wanted to pursue after baseball. So uh, I think I've, there's definitely an excitement about uh, getting to try and do those things full time. But at the same time, I've had a uh, like Olympic stuff going on. And I knew that when I was retiring, um, you know, with like a week to go in the 2019 season, 
that I was still going to, I was going straight to the Olympic qualifier. So it was like, okay, I'm retired, but I also still have this little bit of baseball left. So I'm going to play in these qualifiers and then we're probably not going to win and then, and then I'll be done. But I've got this like last little hurrah and then it, and it's just a tournament and it's like it, you know, tournaments are really fun because you're not playing to like get called up. You're just playing to try and do something that helps the team. Um, and then we end up qualifying for the Olympics and it's like, okay, well, I'm still sort of a baseball player, even though I'm doing everything I possibly can to not be a baseball player anymore. So I've like been sort of one foot in one foot out for the last couple of years now. Um, do you still plan to play this summer? Should they hold the Olympics? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So like I was, you know, I've been hitting and throwing and stuff and it's, uh, it's very strange. Um, just sort of only having this tournament left and then whatever I do to prepare for the tournament, uh, if it's like play indie ball or, or whatever it is. Um, so I'm, like I said, I'm still, it's like one foot in one foot out, but, um, yeah, I don't. I, I feel like I've had enough time at this point that I'm going to be just ready to be done with it. Well, something you're doing with the foot that is out of playing is um, MILB Advocates. How did how did forming that come about? Um, you know, we're in a weird stage of, of minor league baseball, but what are what are kind of the immediate goals moving forward? Yeah, so I I feel fortunate to have been. Um, you know, involved in that getting going. I think that there's, there's so much going on in the minor leagues. Uh, obviously like a lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier that everyone understands is happening, that, um, guys are not eating and, uh, living in terrible situations and not getting any sleep. And, uh, and it's just been, you know, not getting paid of course. Uh, so it, like people know that it's going on, but there hasn't been anyone that's felt like they've been able to do something. And I think that our organization has made a difference so far. And then of course, like now everything changes with, uh, with COVID happening and with um, all of the changes that major league baseball is going through and implementing. And um, so like, you know, we, even though minor leaguers are still not being consulted on any of the things happening, uh, like at least we still have hopes that uh, things are going to get better. You know, they cut 43 teams or whatever, and um, there's sort of no excuse at this point for continuing to pay players, um, you know, less than minimum wage and uh, making $7,000 for an entire year. What is your hope for the, like the life of a minor league baseball player in five years? Uh, just that they're able to treat minor league baseball at, like it's a career, which is what it is. I mean, I, I was in the minors for like 10 years. Um, it's, they've been operating on uh, calling minor league baseball a, a seasonal apprenticeship for years and years and um, using antitrust exemptions to not pay players and to uh, not pay anyone during spring training and um, and all of these different things. So I just hope that guys don't have to work as uh, both an Uber and a Lyft driver in the off season uh, and you know and starve themselves to feel like they uh, that you know that that's the only way that they can survive, uh, which 
really doesn't seem like too much to ask for, uh, you know, just being able to support themselves and support their families and um, just bit like starting with the basics would be awesome. You spent uh, 10 years in pro ball. You played almost 1,100 games in the minors. You played 118 in the majors. What percentage of your career income do you think came from your days on a big league roster? Oh, gosh. I mean, almost all of it. Uh, let's see. Probably 90, 90-something 90 percent. Um, yeah. And that and that's even taking into account being like a AAA free agent, too. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely... But, like, I mean, you only get pay, getting paid for five or... Like, five months in the minors, so, uh, I mean, you're getting paid five months everywhere, but like, uh, you're, even if you're signing for like 15 grand as a minor league free agent, like you're, you know, you're making whatever that is times, uh, five. So it's not like you're, you're not making like a hundred and, uh, 175 grand or whatever for the year. Um, so yeah, definitely like, I mean, you go to the majors and you're making like three grand a day, you know, or 1500 after taxes or whatever. And it's like, you could be making that much in the low minors in a month or even less uh, after taxes. Like I spent two full years in low A where I was probably making a thousand a month. So uh, you're like, you're making more than that in one day. Uh, so yeah, I mean, pretty much definitely like 90, 95% probably. Just a small pay disparity. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, if you could go back to signing day in 09, you you get the chance to to give uh, 20-year-old Ty Kelly a pep talk. What is the, what's the message? What would you tell yourself we're heading out to pro ball? Uh, I think, man, that's tough. I, I feel like I went into pro ball like feeling really confident and really excited. Um, and I definitely would want to keep doing those kinds of things, but I think probably just like, just figure out who you are and be that type of player. And don't worry about trying to do certain things that you're not good at. Let's certainly try and keep improving as a player and, and be able to do different things, but like, don't try and be like a different type of player. Like if you're a utility player and like for myself, I've, never hit for a lot of power right-handed and I would always every year try and change my swing and then realize that I wasn't a power hitter and then go back to, you know, just trying to hit singles and then I would do well. Like I would just, you know, like certainly make improvements, but uh, don't try and go beyond what you're already having success with. So I've got a quick rapid fire for you and then I'll let you get out of here. Cool. Favorite minor league ballpark. Uh, I would say I've actually really liked the, uh, I, I'll say Tacoma because I, I just really liked being in Tacoma so much. Least favorite minor league ballpark. Colorado Springs. Ooh. Yeah. There's I just mean, no question that it's Colorado Springs, especially for being a triple A AAA park, which it's not anymore, but that was just the absolute worst. Uh, best pitcher you ever faced. Uh, I usually say, Steven Strasburg, just because I never once got a hit off him uh, from I faced him in college and then faced him in spring training and then the big leagues and then rehabbing also. And I never got one hit against him. 
This is a new one. Is there a best pitch you've ever faced? Something you've taken or swung through that you were like, I can't believe that someone did that with a ball. Yeah, I mean, probably his changeup. Uh, there, I there are definitely some. There's there's definitely a highlight out there of like uh, a compilation of Strasburg changeups that I I'm on for sure. <laughs> Worst minor league bus trip. Um. Probably, I forget where we were going, but we got stuck uh, on the side of, this was in low A 2011, we got stuck on the side of a highway and ended up playing hacky sack on the on-ramp um, at like three in the morning for a few hours waiting for an entirely new bus from the city we had just come from uh, to come pick us up and, and reload. I think everyone who's played college ball or pro ball has a good bus broke down story. That's oh, definitely. Yeah, the those things are breaking down like crazy. Uh, best food city in minor league baseball? Best food city? So back when I was eating meat, I would probably say going to play in Round Rock, uh, which is like Austin area. Oh, did you get Salt Lake? Uh, no, it was... I forget the... What, what's the... No, what's the uh, famous like barbecue place? Uh, Franklin's? No. Uh, what is it? I forget now. It's been so long. Uh... But I remember going there. It's just like in the gas station, which is just like where they are, I guess. Uh, and maybe it was amazing barbecue. You just kind of like pick whatever you want. And it's a very Texas thing. Is there a best, is there a best vegan food city in minor league baseball? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, because I, I wasn't, I mean, Salt Lake was good. There were good vegan restaurants in Salt Lake. And since I was only vegan for you know for the end of my minor league career but also like being in vegas there's everything too so that's easy of you and the guy the other guy who retired on the same day who is more likely to make a comeback oh well i have to make a comeback unfortunately um i've i've tried to retire and uh it's just it's not taking um but yeah i am making my comeback in some way i just don't know i don't know where yet but it's definitely happening I put a uh, I put a guarantee down that Andrew Luck would come back on the day he retired, and so far I've been proven very wrong. Uh, yeah, he he seems like a very interesting guy. I don't know how like how you predict what he's about to do. Yeah, I, I would I would like to talk to him on a podcast, and probably not about football, just about life. Oh, definitely. Last one I've got for you: best way to eat a sweet potato. Uh, so I do uh, I bake them actually. Which most people just assume that um, they're getting fried because they're you know fries. So I I bake them. I, I cut them up pretty thick. I go salt, garlic powder, uh, cayenne and chili powder and I make them pretty spicy. I like to go with a sauce of like uh, barbecue and sriracha um, and uh, yeah, and they taste really good. And I, I definitely recommend like thicker cut because then you're getting a lot more of the sweet potato and not making them so much like uh, thin, like fries that are crunchy, I guess. I feel like that takes away a lot of the moisture. So that's the way I always do it. Well, Ty, that's all I've got for you unless there is a place you can direct people to maybe help out or support MILB Advocates. Yeah, um, MILB Advocates on social media, on both uh, Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, we're advocates for minor leaguers and support us. Just retweet stuff, sign petitions, do all of those things. Uh, yeah, everything is... Everything is good and helpful and just, you know, 
just having just being able to like get the message out and for it to be okay to want more than um you know living in poverty for minor leaguers is good ty this was awesome thanks so much for joining from fiend out of the farm thanks for having me on of course and that's a wrap on the year of 2020 on From Phenom to the Farm. Again, big thanks to both Ty Kelly for taking this time for this episode and anyone who has listened to these episodes over the course of this year. we got a lot of great stuff coming in 2021. Uh, tune in in two weeks when we talk to Gift and GoPay. Also remember, subscribe to Baseball America for all your amateur and prospect news. And we'll catch you in 2021. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.